This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS invests in technology and innovations that support ambitious sustainability goals. Learn about AWS sustainability work at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by NRG Energy. Businesses are making moves to decarbonize. The new Race to Net Zero podcast features insightful conversations with industry experts and business leaders committed to net zero emissions. Don't miss this limited series with valuable information to help you achieve your sustainability goals. Visit nrg.com slash zero. From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how the EU is responding to the Inflation Reduction Act, why courage is a missing ingredient in sustainability leadership, another milestone for green steel production, and the blurring of e-commerce and re-commerce. We're cashing out this week on 350. It's February 10th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, getting ready to head west is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I am very excited to be seeing you and the rest of the team next week. It's so exciting. Oh, my God. Next, Yay. Next week, of course, for those who have been living under a rock with lights off and internet unplugged is Green Biz 23, our annual uh, shindig of uh, sustainability professionals. We will have over 1,800 of them coming to the JW Marriott uh, Camelback Inn at uh, in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, starting on, well, the, the main event starts on Tuesday. There is a number of pre-events starting on Monday. It'll continue all the way into Thursday. It's, uh, um, let, let's just stop and, and give major kudos to our colleague, Dylan Siegler, who has built this event, over 350 speakers, a couple hundred sessions, um, lots of bells and whistles and fun side events and extracurricular things and on and on and on. Um, it's going to be epic. And, um, you know, it's sold out. Uh, we turned down probably 100, 200 people who wanted to come, but there's just no room. But we will be live streaming the uh, two plenary sessions uh, on February 14th and 15th, about 90 minutes each, starting at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, 12.30 Pacific. Uh, we'll provide more information in this week's show notes. Um, but uh, yeah, what uh, what are you doing, doing there? I'm not, what are you doing there, but what are your roles at the event, <laughs> Heather? <laughs> what am I doing there? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I, I am, first of all, I'm really excited um, to be meeting with some of the past 30 under 30, Green Biz 30 under 30 honorees. Um, we're gonna have a dinner with some of them on Wednesday night. 
excited for that, guys. I hope you're listening. Um, and just on, the, on, on that note, I'll make a little plug for the fact that the nominations for the 2023 list will be live um, next week. Uh, probably on the 13th or 14th, just waiting for some artwork. Um, but get your uh, your nomination lists ready, folks, um, for, for this year's list. So I'm really excited about that. I'm doing a couple of sessions. Um, one about water technology and, and strategy. And then I'm, I'm actually going to follow up that up with a field trip to a, a watershed project, which I'm excited oh, about. Nice. Wait, yeah. wait they, yeah, have, yeah. they have water in Arizona? They have water in Arizona. It's about an hour and a half outside of um, of where we'll be. I'm being uh, brought out there by the Nature Cons- Cons- Conservancy and P- P&G, Procter & Gamble, and uh, Bonneville. So I'm going to go visit a site, see what's up, um, how companies can contribute. So I'm going to be doing some field reporting, which I'm excited about, bringing my boots for the mud that I will experience. Um, have a main stage conversation also with Paramount, which I'm excited about. Talking about Paramount, the, the, the media company, the, the media company. Yeah, the media company um, focusing on how they will be using their content to inspire change and also to reflect society as opposed to a certain slice of society. So it's it's a, it, I'm excited about the conversation. It's a little bit more of the S, the social um, aspect of the ESG um, movement. But uh, yeah, I'm actually one question for you, Joel. Uh, I know we're sold out, but are you bringing your new BFF, Chat GPTF? Chat GPT. Referring to my new um, uh, well, Chat GPT uh, with 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 which I did an, a Q and A interview this week uh, about sustainability and artificial intelligence and 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 climate tech. Um, is I guess uh, my BFF to the extent that some computer code couldn't be friendly. I'm not that hard up for friends, but you know, so be it. Um, uh, I'm it, just jealous that you thought of that idea first. Oh, I, I, good yeah. idea. Well, awesome. there's there's lots more High conversations to have. I encourage you to check out the Q and A um, mm-hmm. uh, that that I did around uh, on Monday this week. Um, there's lots more conversations to be had with ChatGPT, which that's the mm-hmm. uh, the artific- artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, I, I described it in the article. And I don't have it in front of me, but it's basically a very smart query engine, and it's able to carry on conversations and learn. And we had an interesting conversation, as I said, Q and A that ran this <laughs> week. So, nope, I'm not bringing it specifically, but it is there and everywhere. But you know what? Let's get down to it because we've got uh, some great stuff to talk about in this week's Week in Review. I'm going to start us with a story from Europe by our contributing writer, Tom Haworth. He is uh, writing this week about the European Union's response to the Inflation Reduction Act. So as um, many outlets have reported this week, there are some new industrial policies that are being proposed that would take direct aim at some of the IRA's initiatives. And I guess really what's going on here is the sort of desire for these big regions to be known as the the hubs, the creation hubs, the manufacturing hubs, the innovation hubs for climate tech, right? So that's what what it's turning into. Um, the IRA, of course, gives a lot of incentives to folks that are that are 
manufacturing in the United States, which is something that the uh, EU has been a little bit miffed about. Um, the EU is is contemplating a number of tariffs as a result. So that's and that's actually something that relates to our one of our other stories this week, steel. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, in any event, I think it's just for me this is really intriguing, and it it sets both of these regions up against China, um, which is of course where a lot of the things, especially things like solar panels, are made today. So um, these these regions are are realizing that hey there's a lot of economic value in in this transition and let's let's jump on board and so this is the uh, eu's response um and it's not i should you know be 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 clear here it's just being talked about right now there's no specific thing that's passed at this point but there's definitely going to be policies and legislation that comes out that will be counter um counter sort of response to IRA and other things. I, I Just before I hand the mic over to you, I thought one of the in, more interesting takes um, on this issue this week was in the Cypher newsletter, which was pointing out the fact that there's so many great innovations coming out of emerging economies like Africa um, and India and, um, and of course, places in South America. And if the, the danger is that those those entrepreneurs might somehow be left out in the cold. So there's, there's, I think that's a great point. And I, cause there is just so much in, in innovation. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some great circular economy models that I've seen come out of South America in particular. And I, I definitely one of these things that's going to be playing out in real time for years and decades to come. So Joel, I'm just curious what your take is on this. You've, you've been over in Europe more recently than I have. Yeah, first of all, Amy Harder writes uh, the Cypher newsletter. She's over, I think, on behalf of the Breakthrough uh, Energy Initiative, uh, uh, Breakthrough Energy up in Washington. Uh, this well, this, is, this piece was by her colleague Anka, actually. Ah, okay, but, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is really significant. Um, what's significant is the, um, the competitiveness now that's taking place globally, at least in the U.S. and North America, and hopefully in Asia, uh, to be seen as the hub for climate tech. Uh, and 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 all everything that's needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and, and this has been long in the coming. I mean, uh, back in December 2019, uh, the the European Commission presented the European Green Deal, which set the goal of making Europe the first climate neutral continent by 2050. And then there's a European climate law that enshrined uh, binding legislation to some of the things needed to get there. Uh, but that was more about the performance, the emissions. This is now about the investment uh, in the technologies and, and that the world will need. Um, and uh, you know, kudos to President Biden and the, at least the parts of U.S. Congress that passed the Inflation Reduction Act last year, uh, which of course is really uh, the title of which really belies the fact that this is really a climate bill. Uh, it, it is really set in motion. Uh, as you know, sort of cascading competitiveness, uh, and uh, it is so uh, exciting. And as you note, Heather, this is not you know nothing's happening this week, this month, but we're setting in motion over the next five, ten, certainly twenty years, uh, a transition, a transformation, maybe even a revolution in technology that's going to that that we need if we're ever going to come close to the climate goals set. 
um, in Paris at, at, at COP15 and or COP21, sorry, in 2015, or any of the other goals that uh, companies and countries are making. So, um, you know, early days. Uh, and by the way, uh, back in Davos last month, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who's the uh, the uh, head of the European Commission, uh, emphasized the need. She gave a speech in Davos that said that the EU needed to sharpen its competitive edge through clean tech investment and 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 leading on the path to climate neutrality and and um, invited the uh, European Council for the uh, for the Commission to propose uh, you know all relevant national and EU tools to do this. So this mobilization is non-trivial. In fact, I think it's going to be transformational. So um, I, I'm just really excited. But speaking of transformations, uh, let's talk about a piece that you did, great piece this week on st green steel production and one particular company um, uh, called Boston Metal um, that's trying to change that metal, <laughs> steel. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied here, so I'm just going to hand it over to you. Okay. Well, I've actually wanted to write about this company for a long time. Um, I just haven't managed to find the time. But then they found the time for me because they had another $120 million investment. I was like, okay, it's time. Um, so by the way, I love names that are just descriptive of what companies really are is they're based in Boston and they are dealing with metal. So I love it. Good name, guys. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, Boston Metal is a organization that is working on how to decarbonize, if you will, steel production in particular. Um, they are uh, they have a process that is called molten oxide electrolysis, and they are basically using electricity rather than the the um, the fossil fuels that would typically be used to to um, process ore into into uh, into the steel that we're that we look for to build everything from you know wind turbines, by the way, to to infrastructure and so forth. We know steel is one of the most widely used um, materials. I think it actually, I'm not, I forget whether it, it is more than cement, but it's one of those things um, after water that is one, one of these resources that is used everywhere and for everything. Um, so these folks got a, a new fundraise and particularly interesting to me was, and I always get the name, um, mis mispronounce the name, but ArcelorMittal, um, the big steel company is is their their very big investor in this particular round. Um, so this this relationship is is notable because of that for for me, the fact that one of these big corporations that is actually in this market today and needs to needs to move to this place is is um is really notable. In fact, it is this companies it is the largest single investment from the X carb innovation fund in in a in a climate tech technology so they they've of the 120 million dollars the the steel company I just mentioned is putting 36 million into it to, into it so Heather we've been hearing about green steel for mm -hmm. a while let's say a couple of years um, and you know for a while it was a science experiment then it was a you know some test projects seems to be coming online, but how online is it? Is this in the market? Um, how is it being used? Is it cost competitive? What, what do you know about all that? There's 
there's uh yes the cost competitive thing not yet um definitely not yet um there are a couple of things happening um the the one that the venture the green steel venture you probably have heard about the most is called h2 green steel and it's out of europe um they are working with a number of different companies um over there and what's happening now is is number one these these larger corporations which are finally um investing in order to help bring that cost down right to get the cost down as well as there's um buyers groups like the first movers coalition one of their initiatives is steel so there's a, a number of companies including um ones like ford scania volvo nl um iberdrola they are all buying um have pledged to buy some percentage of uh, this green steel near what they call near zero emissions technologies um by 2030 so they they're they're basically saying yes we're gonna we're gonna buy this stuff they're sending the buying signals there are also some um new rating systems coming out something called there's one in particular called responsible steel that's starting to rate some of the the production facilities and and looking at things like um, electric arc furnaces so that's where uh most of the innovation has happened at to date is the and believe it or not these things have been around for a long time but electric arc furnaces are really um uh coming on strong because they are much more efficient and um than the the existing the the former production process the sort of the the way you know the <laughs> the 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 high intensity uh, furnaces and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, again, one of these it's one of these transition things, but it's one of these transition things that is now coming on strong. And then the final data point I'll mention is that there are a number of financing organizations that basically come out and said, "Hey, you know, new steel production facilities, you want to build a new one? Well, we're going to put our money into these these new types of technologies and." it's kind of it kind of it's reminiscent of the sustainable shipping uh finance um uh principles that came out a few years ago where a number of organizations said yeah we're not going to finance it if it's it's high if it's high emissions we're only going to finance the stuff that's pointing towards lower carbon so yeah very cool yes cool stuff indeed and speaking of stealing ourselves let's talk about courage which is the subject of a piece written by Christina Robb uh of this week um uh, the vital aspect of sustainability leadership we don't talk about enough. And I'm just so glad that we're bringing, uh, keeping this word courage uh, front and center. Um, and just my background, uh, last month, uh, last year at GreenBiz 22, I interviewed on stage Paul Pullman, uh, who of course had a book that he wrote with Andrew Winston called Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. And he talks a lot about the need for courage. And, and he's not the only one, but he's probably one of the more prominent voices talking about the fact that, you know, there's the leadership is is not stepping up the way it needs to. And so Christina took on, uh, you know, this topic, what is courage in leadership and, and even where the word comes from. Mm -hmm. um, but she gives uh, a whole series of of definitions and you know thinking not only for the near term but also for the long term driving large scale transformation at the individual and collective level changing people's hearts and minds i won't read the whole list but you you sort of get the idea um i i just think this is one of those messages that we want to keep you know one of the drums we want to keep beating i guess 
what did you take away from this, Heather? Yeah, this is just one of those, I've been spending a lot of time coaching myself and trying to be more um, courageous in my own- Courageous? Yeah, co- yeah. Co- courageous in my own writing, courageous in my topics that I pick. And I just love this because it's, it, one of the things that she says is courage is not the absence of fear, but rather finding the strength and faith to move forward in despite it. And I just, you know, that that sort of spoke to me personally. Um, also, uh, and I, by the way, I did not know that Aristotle called it the first virtue because it makes all of the other virtues possible. It's kind of the ripple effect, right? I didn't know that. But um, I also loved her fact that it, she, you know, the fact that it, it exists in small actions. So we we do need bold leadership, but also it's it's just starting, getting started, speaking up. Um, do the right thing, just getting out of your comfort zone. Um, I don't know. It just, yeah, I, I, I actually really love these pieces because they, they just, I think anyone reading this, whatever situation they're in, get, gets to just sort of a jolt of inspiration. And it's, it's pretty short. It's not one of these like 600 page tomes. Um, and it, it just, it jolted me and I hope it jolts the readers. There are many different reasons people choose to buy secondhand. Some are looking to cut waste and their carbon footprint by keeping an item in circulation. Others are driven by price tags. Re-commerce enabler Trove is used by the likes of Allbirds, Lulamon, Patagonia, and REI to keep everything from shoes to tents in circulation. To catch up on its plans and expectations for 2023, I'm joined by Andy Rubin, founder and executive chairman of Trove. Andy, hi. Great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Exciting time. Indeed. In preparing for the interview, I came across data suggesting that the re-commerce market could reach $289 billion in revenue by 2027. I I don't know. I, these forecasts always throw me, and I know that forecasts are always made to be changed. But what sort of growth did Trove see in 2022? Um, I'm just curious, you know, looking back, what happened? Yeah. Anytime we look back across any of these predictions, without fail, it turns out to be bigger than we expected. Not just Trove, but the whole industry. Overperformance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It continues. The industry continues. Anyone who goes back five years and looks at the forecast of of how big how big brands and how big resale would be this year in 2023 or 2022, the projections are aggressive and they are always underestimated for the reality. And I I think a big driver of that is this is a there there it's kind of a perfect storm, but this is a customer shift in how we shop, and the more you know it's a combination of we love finding things that have better quality and aspirational brands that we can now access and afford. Sustainability and, and shopping with our values is a big driver. And the fun of, you know, they're just, you can always find a plentiful item, but there's something incredible about finding something that is not on every shelf. And as long as as long as that experience is good and you can do it online, why not? So we see really a, a customer shift here. Mm-hmm. So what did what did you see in in twenty twenty two? What about Trove specifically? Yeah, so we um, 
we saw, I mean, we don't, we don't talk specifically about our revenue, but, um, we, we beat what we expected to do and it was, um, significant double digit growth and it continues. Okay. So I'm curious about the, the economic conditions of the market right now. How, how, how has the high rate of inflation affected things? Do you think, is it, is it a factor? Yeah, it's um it cuts two different ways and I think that there's some nuance here. In one way, inflation creates, I mean for all of us, more more um pressure on wallets and that is a huge tailwind that's a help right for resale in general. The flip side of that is because there is such aggressive discounting on the brand side right now with heavy inventory levels, that is a headwind and so I think that it is, um, I think we're seeing that in the market right now, that both of those are taking place. The shift I mentioned, you know, the shift I mentioned for all of us and the customer shift toward more resale, that is a 10, 20 year shift that is, um, you know, counter cyclical. It increases in um, harder economic times. It also increases in good times. So that's a shift that's going to be a much larger shift. But I think that the the current inflationary market does cut both ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the numbers that we do know is that more than 120 brands now support some sort of dedicated resale program. And that is like a fourfold increase over the past 12 months. That's crazy. Um, what what are these companies hoping to achieve? Why do you think this is this is happening? Yeah, even first, just a comment on the 120. You know, we go back to the very first branded program was 2017, was Patagonia, and there were three that year um, that were branded resale programs, Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, and REI. Fast forward to a year ago, it was 31, and then last year was 120. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is, a, is back to the customer shift, what every brand is facing is as customers evolve and change the way they want to shop. It, it behooves every brand to offer not just the first sale of their items, but to make money on the second, third, and fourth sale. So they want to keep control. Yeah. And it's, it is providing options for customers who are looking for that product. And if they can't find, if they can't find the, um, the secondhand Arcteryx item on Arcteryx, then they're going to be shopping on eBay or ThreadUp or the Real Real. And why wouldn't, you know, what every customer wants when they're a customer of Arcteryx is to have that experience. So they, you know, given the option, customers will choose to buy the item from the brand. And when brands like Arcteryx or Patagonia or REI can make it so easy to hand items back we're no longer wearing, that is a great way to take something that we have gotten the value out of or are no longer using and, and get you know, still find value in that and pass them on to the next owner. It just, it makes a lot of sense in brands like they do in pre-certified automotive. They've got a right, they've got a right to lead and win this space. Every brand will have a resale program. Got it. Many of the articles that I have read about this particular phenomenon make a lot about the younger consumer. They talk about younger demographics um, driving this. Uh, what about other generations of consumers? Yeah, we we see it. We, we see um, there are differences in the customers who trade in compared to the customers who purchase secondhand. The mm. customers who purchase secondhand tend to be younger, right? Gen Z is by far 
the most active generation of purchasing secondhand. In fact, not only is the line between secondhand and first purchase gone, in many respects for younger generations, purchasing secondhand is preferred. Yeah. Because again, you don't have the, you can access a, a premium brand, um, you don't, it aligns with values, et cetera. On the trade-in side, we tend to see a wider spectrum because the, you know, the um, other generations will be the ones who have a closet full of Patagonia that they're not wearing. And so we see a different demographic in the trade-in side. And I think that's a, it's the opportunity that we see for brands when they really own this channel. That on one side, by making these options um, available, let's say to an REI customer, it allows a younger customer to start their shop with REI. And we see this, right? Start their shopping with REI because the chance of finding a more premium tent with REI secondhand, start with REI, that's fantastic. That tends to be a younger customer. The customer that might be bringing back that tent and walking into a store with something they're not using, that tends to be um, a slightly older customer. On the one hand, um, with new customers, about 65% for the brands we work with of customers who buy used are new to the brand. Wow. So 65% means that a program like this, you're actually as a brand getting paid to acquire new younger customers. On the flip side, when a brand makes it easy for us to bring back items, they're creating footfall in stores, they're creating additional visits on a website, and they see about a 2x fold increase in trips, traffic, and loyalty. So on one side, you're bringing in new customers. On the other side, you're bringing back your loyal customers by being able to better serve them for standing behind your products. You know, it's interesting. I tend to think of this e-commerce in general as a online phenomenon like you would do this online I, I mean i can think of some secondhand stores that i go into myself but how how does that play like the how is the online sort of hybrid experience playing out is is that super important as well yeah it's like um it's a modern it's a modern expectation from all of us to be omnichannel mm. and so there are elements where Finding the size medium in this certain item is easier online, but there are also elements like a kid's bike at an REI. It's great to be able to walk into your local co-op to bring your bike back um, when your daughter just outgrew it and find the bike you want. And the fact that you can buy your first and last kid's bike at REI and then every two to three years walk the bike back in your co-op, get credit immediately on a gift card for that bike find the next bike used or new, fantastic. And so there are elements that are gonna make sense in stores, there are elements that are gonna make sense online, and ultimately what um, what we find the leading brands and retailers doing is just being omni-channel about it, putting the right products and the right experiences online and in stores. Trade-in, Lululemon is a brand that does an exceptional job of in-store trade-in. Hmm. And if um, any listeners have experience. I mean, they just make it, it's such an incredible experience to walk into a Lululemon store of which there are many, right? 400 plus with two or three um, yoga pieces that you're no longer wearing and be able to have credit on the spot. That experience is, it takes a minute and a half. A reason to go in the store. Absolutely. 
So what can you tell me about regional interest, right? I'm in the US, I believe you are in the US right now, at least. Mm-hmm. Where is uh, re-commerce turning out to be most popular? Is it is there a regional demographic or, or bias that you can talk about? Um, right now, there is an incredible, I mean, globally, the, I mean, the short answer is it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Globally right now, the legislation in the EU is driving um, brands and marketplaces to be more proactive to address pending legislation. The U.S. is um, is not as far ahead as I would say the EU is on legislation, but there is pending legislation that will this will see the same effect in the U.S. The U.S. from a technology perspective, with some of the marketplace players that I mentioned, who really pioneered the space, right? The real reels and thread ups and vestiaires and so on. Um, they are the players right now. A majority of that market is in the U.S., and that's the market that brands are realizing. You know, those items are being sold on the real real, but they're really that's my brand, and I should have access to that revenue, and I should be owning that customer. I shouldn't be handing that customer to somebody else. So I think the U.S., Europe, but we also see, I mean, Japan, South Korea, China, uh, South America. It is the the dominant reason that this market is growing is based on better things and access to them for less money. And value is a pretty global, um, a pretty aligned global proposition. We will see this in every market. It'll be done slightly different by market, but we will see this everywhere. So what's the fastest growing product category for resale, specifically branded resale, and how does Trove plan to address it? Yeah, so over the last year, I would say it likely was footwear. I feel like what we see, so we're in outdoor footwear, fashion apparel, and luxury. And of those, outdoor has um, the customer and the brands for outdoor have really let out. You know, they've they've been ahead. Fashion is right behind with quite a few fashion pieces out there and a lot of opportunity. We saw a lot of growth in footwear last year and luxury of those four. Luxury has the biggest opportunity. Customers are fairly far ahead in luxury, but brands have to date not really participated. Can you define luxury for me? Like what do yeah, you mean Yeah, so by luxury, that? Um, think of an Hermes handbag. Okay. Right, or a Gucci handbag or Louis Vuitton or Balenciaga kind of that level of luxury, Burberry is a great mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Those products tend to make up a dominant share of the real real or vestiaire. There are a lot of those products on thread up. Frankly, there are a lot of um, Louis Vuitton and Gucci products on Walmart and Amazon these days. And one of the biggest opportunities or really imperatives we see for luxury, um, one of the biggest imperatives is that a brand like Canada Goose shouldn't have anyone else speaking for them. And when a Canada Goose item is being sold on Walmart, Canada Goose doesn't have the ability to decide how that item is, how that parka is being priced, how it's being described, when it shows up, what the photography looks like. What we're talking about is core elements of a brand, and these are premium brands. And so in a world where more and more of us are finding these items secondhand, more and more of the brand is being represented in this secondhand market. And every luxury player needs to control how their brand is being represented. And so there's a massive opportunity in luxury. This is going to be the year that we'll, we see luxury really getting into the game and, 
These items are made, they're made with incredible craftsmanship and heritage. They last a long time and they hold their value. So it is just, the, it's a perfect market for resale. Okay. That does bring me to my final question. You kind of uh, telegraphed it too, which is what do you expect or predict in the year ahead, knowing of course that forecasts are made to be broken? So one of the trends we just talked about was we will see a growth in luxury. Mm-hmm. We will see consolidation, not on the service providers yet. We will see consolidation on the third-party marketplaces. Those marketplaces, many of them are public now. They're a lot more mature. There is room for some of those, but not all of those. So we will continue to see consolidation there. We've already had two acquisitions, and it's only January, you know, end of January Something, right now. Yeah. So yeah, so um, we'll see consolidation there. We'll see more integration between resale and other brand channels. So brands are doing a really nice job of integrating the the marketing and the kind of brand positioning. But back to the conversation we had around omni-channel, we'll see a lot more integration with stores and store-level trade-in, um, online purchasing, integration between you know previously owned and and first sale and mainline. So more more brand integration. Uh, we'll also see a lot of brands that launched last year start to now think about how they're going to scale. So again, we had 120 brands last year. Many of them have very little scale behind them. And as they realize the importance for their brand, for gaining new customers, for building loyalty, and for revenue, we will see more of those um, players really work toward bringing scale to what's now live. Sounds like a breakthrough year for re-commerce and the circular economy. Thanks for joining us, Andy. I appreciate it. Thank you. You just heard from Andy Rubin, founder and executive chairman of Trove. Before we let you go, another plug for the Green Biz 23 free live stream, February 14th and 15th. Just tune into greenbiz.com to watch starting at about 3.30 Eastern time, 12 30 Pacific. That's on Tuesday and Wednesday uh, next week. And we'll provide more information in this week's show notes. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned. And check out our free weekly newsletters, eight of them now. There's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. And we love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, and tips, just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350 from Green Biz 23 in Scottsdale, Arizona. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where a commitment to sustainability means delivering innovative solutions every day. Learn how AWS is accelerating change at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by NRG Energy. Businesses are making moves to decarbonize. The new Race to Net Zero podcast features insightful conversations with industry experts and business leaders committed to net zero emissions. Don't miss this limited series with valuable information to help you achieve your sustainability goals. Visit nrg.com slash zero.